Hey Joe, how's it going? Yeah, good, thank you. You? Yeah, I'm okay. Yeah, what sort of things have you been up to since the last episode? Uh, well, same old, same old, just doing some work, staying safe, controlling the virus, protecting the NHS, all of that stuff that we've become tragically used to. And now we're in April. Happy virusversary, because it's been a year now. It's been more than a year, hasn't it? It's been over a year. I've done, I've done, I've done something new in the, um, in the aftermath of the anniversary of lockdown. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I thought, because we spend a lot of time thinking and talking about satire and comedy, um, that, you know, last time I had a go at writing um, satirical fiction. So this time I'm going to have a go at doing some stand-up. Really? That's amazing. Yeah, so I thought I might um, test some material on you. Okay, shoot. Well, so before I do, I'm just going to explain the context for this. So, you know, um, everything's quite polarised at the moment. Comedy seems especially divisive in terms of sort of perceived binary oppositions with um, with different standpoints and so on. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think we talked about that with Andrew Doyle and Lee Stein and Lee Stein and Sharon Lockyer and Andrew Doyle again. That's right. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to I thought if I'm going to if I'm going to make it as a comedian, which I fully expect to do, <laughs> I'm going to have to try very hard to appeal to the left wing and the right wing because whichever side I opt for there's always a strong chance I might get cancelled or you know there might be a new director of the BBC who won't want my stuff so and also you know just just I think there's a saying isn't there um it's best to try and please all of the people all of the time and that is an eminently possible thing to do so that's what I'm going to do I'm just kind of smooth over the cracks with some irony and yeah I think think it will all go fine that sounds like a foolproof plan Right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna balance this out with a right wing joke and a left wing joke. Okay. Yeah, don't tell me which one's which. All right. Okay. So here goes. Um, evening, ladies and gentlemen. There's a, a funny man on the fourth uh, fourth row there. I think I'll I'll mock him for a bit. Um, have you ever noticed things? Have you ever noticed anything? I've noticed. I have noticed things like <laughs> what like train tickets. What's that all about? How do you even print them? I don't know. Where do they come from? How do you, if you want to get a train, how do you even get a ticket? I don't know. I know. And, and when you get on a train, have you ever noticed um, they're not always exactly on time? I have to, I've noticed that as well. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's happened to me. Yeah. And, and have you ever noticed that, um, that when you get coffee on a train, it's not as nice as normal coffee? Yes. It's never quite as nice, is it? And you get, you get the coffee, right? Don't you, you get the coffee? You carry the coffee back to your seat, you drink the coffee, and it's really hot. Burns your, burns your mouth, doesn't it? And then you're like, oh, I've got a burned mouth. I'm gonna... Anyway, that's not the right-wing, left-wing stuff. That's not um, actually a comment on privatised railway lines. It's not a comment on British Rail, if I was a comedian in the past. That's that's preamble, okay? So we've done we've done the preamble now. That was, now we're going to do the main amble, okay? So, ladies and gentlemen, knock, knock. Who's there? Low taxation. Low taxation who? Low taxation and a smaller state. Tough crowd. Uh, well, let's let's see if this one works any better. Knock knock. Who's there? High taxation. High taxation. Who? High taxation and a larger state. Thank you. You've been a wonderful audience. Thank you so much. Goodbye.
those are very good right wing and left wing jokes. I've got I've got two pieces of feedback. Before I before I get to my feedback on those jokes, though, should we just tell the lovely listeners who we are and what they're listening to? Yes, we should do that. I am Ben Elton. I no, I am Joe War. I am a senior lecturer in English literature and co-host of this podcast, co-hosted with... Dr. Adam James Smith, a senior lecturer in 18th century literature. What is the podcast? I think it's called Saturday Night Live. No, I think it's called Smith and Ward Talk About Satire, isn't it? It is. And what do we do on the podcast? I'm letting you do all the heavy lifting this week. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I'll do the stand-up and the boring intro. We talk about the form, function and future and history of satire. So now that's out of the way, are you ready for your feedback? Go ahead. I've got two issues. Yes. Well, one of them is they're not very funny. And the other okay. one, what is the role of irony? So, for example, I'm assuming the one about low taxation was the right wing joke. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So is it the subtext of the joke or is the joke, in fact, satirising someone who would want low taxation and a smaller state? In which case, okay, well, a joke. I'm going to say first that I think your critique could have worked harder in terms of manifesting as a shit sandwich because that was just uh, a cruel observation and then um, quite a a sort of targeted and hostile question. (laughs) But that's fine. Uh, As a comedian, I'm uh, notoriously thick-skinned. So, um, yes, I think you've you've actually inadvertently, like a a tiny child or a a lamb you've hit upon quite an interesting truth there haven't you which is if you're trying to say something that is obviously and easily classifiable as left or right wing where and how does it do the funny stuff like yeah if if you're trying to just say something that's right wing or say something that's obviously left wing it's very difficult to splice that. And obviously, as listeners will, will be able to hear, I've tried really, really hard to, to sort of rely on a, a structure and a format that's supposed to kind of generate laughter. Um, but I feel like perhaps it doesn't quite work because if you're overtly trying to say something that is obviously left-wing or obviously right-wing, how do you do that and at the same time be doing something funny? I'm not saying it can't be done. Yeah, I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm saying I can't. I can't do it. But yes, where where is the irony? I suppose you would you couldn't do it as stand up, could you? You'd have to have it like characters in a sketch show or something, where one was obviously a kind of presented as a Tory and one presented as um, a, a Labour voter. But yeah, does it doesn't doesn't work, does it? That so, and I think what is hopefully obvious, and no one's going to say like Joe don't give up the day job or uh, I didn't like that bit when uh, when Joe did the comedy because don't tell her but I don't think she's very good at it I wasn't really trying to do stand-up that was a little routine wasn't it to set up some of the themes that we're going to discuss today just um two more things about the joke uh, two oh, good more, more things go on two more things. one is I'm sorry that my critique was so harsh I mean, the, the, the positives are they are left-wing and right-wing jokes and they're very well delivered. But also, I do think it can work as comedy because the, the, the actual point of the satire is how impossible it is to write a left-wing and right-wing joke. So ah. when the joke is, this is what an actual right-wing joke would sound like, it is funny because the joke doesn't work as comedy. Shall we talk about the satire, the BBC, the left-wing and the right-wing and yeah, the west-wing? The left-wing Not the west-wing. <laughs> left wing the right wing and not the west wing i think we should because this is something that we've tiptoed around on the podcast before as we've already alluded to but 
in conversation, the conversation around satire, I feel, has gone from being predominantly when we started this project, is satire dead, to now, is satire left wing or right wing? Or I think we should start before we talk about what's left wing and what's right wing comedy and satire. We should talk about what's left wing and what's right wing, what we understand by that, and what we think we are. So you shared a little quiz didn't you so i thought we could we could talk about that and talk about left and right wing things so tell us tell us about the political compass well the political compass is a what do you describe a quiz a test it's a survey that you can fill in on the internet quiz it's a quiz yeah and it and it tells you it aligns you um on a grid between broadly left wing and right wing along one axis and libertarian and authoritarian on the other axis. And I think when it talks about left and right wing, it's talking mainly about economic fiscal policies, isn't it? So left would be redistribution of the wealth, right would be the opposite of that. So you answer a certain a load of questions. It takes about 10, 15 minutes to answer all the questions. They're not, some of the questions are really obvious, like you know, but some of them are a little bit more obscure. And it just asks you to say if you strongly agree, agree, disagree, or strongly disagree. And then at the end, it produces this graph uh, which shows where you are. Um, and if you want to, you can download a certificate which, tell, which gives you an indication of who from history you are closestly aligned to. So Yeah, so it, it does have a lot of um, fiscal questions, doesn't it, about, um, you know, if you believe something should be done about monopolies or that you know if, if a free market is the most obvious route to freedom for most citizens but there are also social attitudes aren't there like do you believe that homosexuality can be trained out of people and things like that or things about what you think about the family unit but it, it definitely starts off with quite a lot of fiscal economic questions and then yeah then you get where you are placed on the compass so some of the questions are quite tricky though i mean so and, and they change they're not the same all the time so i did this quiz about a year ago and i remember i got slightly more authoritarian than you last time we did it and i think mm. because there was a question it was like all student all school children should wear uniforms and understand discipline <laughs> but strongly agree because i think <laughs> i think that's what society would benefit from all right gavin williamson <laughs> That's what I thought at the time. I just thought, well, school uniforms, less less having to worry about what you're going to wear to go to school. And also, you know, a bit of discipline probably goes probably goes a long way. Whereas that question is gone now. But there was another there was a new question, which was an advantage of a one party state would be that there'd be a lot less bureaucracy and it'd be a lot more efficient. Agree or disagree. And wasn't it, it would reduce dissent or something like that. Yeah, agree or disagree. And I thought, well, yeah, I I don't think that's a good idea, but I agree that it probably is an advantage of a one-party state is that it is going to be a, a quicker to reach decisions. Disadvantages would be, you know, the loss of freedom and democracy. I would say it would definitely be, at least in the short term, an outcome yeah. of a one-party state. I don't know if it would necessarily be an advantage to have a party in power that were never in any way held to account or questioned or, you know, had to do any PMQs or whatever. But so put us out of our suspense what where on the compass did you end up so i ended up there's four quadrants and i ended up in the left libertarian quadrant and on the i did download the certificate and it shows you who i'm nearby so i'm slightly slightly 
right of Caroline Lucas and slightly left of Nelson Mandela. Right. Um, well, so within an air's breadth of Thomas Paine. So I'm so I'm sort oh. of in a triangle of Nelson Mandela, Caroline Lucas, and Thomas Paine. Well, I didn't download the certificate, so I don't know if I'm more or less left wing than Caroline Lucas, Thomas Paine or Nelson Mandela. But um, amazingly, I was staggered to learn that, as has been the case every time I've done this quiz, I also was a left libertarian, um, sort of pretty much in the in the centre of that little quadrant. So, yeah, it's nice to nice to have sort of documentary evidence that you're not drifting to the right as you get older, isn't it? It did strike me that if... Or is it? I'm being a bit partisan there. Yes, it is. It um, it did strike me that if ever the left needed a reason or a way to tear itself apart in a in some sort of desperate bid to prove who's more virtuous than the other, plotting everyone on this graph would be a way to do it, wouldn't it? Half a half a millimeter to the right, they'd be like, "You're a Nazi! Get off the internet!" Council. Well, thankfully, we're a long way from the left being in such a position where they've got to endlessly score points off each other and prove who is the most virtuous. Oh, wait. Anyway, yes. So what is left wing and right? So we've decided that we're both left libertarian. We didn't decide it. The compass decided it. The compass, the compass has placed us in a... So we're much more libertarian than authoritarian. We're much more left than right. But what does it all mean? What do you understand by it? When you as I assume you do identify in quotation marks as being left wing, what does that relate to? What makes you left wing? So, I mean, but the, it comes down to, this is why the joke at the start was so clever, those jokes that you did. Because in my mind, if you boil it right down, it is a question of fiscal policy, isn't it? It's like socialism or the opposite. See, I would say I definitely do identify as left wing. But I don't think I necessarily understand by that what, what is sometimes aligned with being left and being right wing. And we're gonna, this is all going to be relevant in terms of the, con the conversation about, about comedy, isn't it? But I would say it's left wing to believe that benefits should be paid with kind of minimal fuss and at a level that allows people to live a life with dignity. I would prefer it if some people were able to game the system and some people claimed more than they were entitled to and some people had a few quid more than they should i would prefer that situation to a system so harsh and punitive that some people went hungry just in order to make absolutely sure that nobody could get more than they were entitled to and i like that's not an original observation i've heard that elsewhere as the as a description it strikes me as fairly apt that the the right would prefer that there's some attrition in terms of people going without so that we know that nobody got more than they were entitled to rather than that some people um got too much and we know from that that nobody went hungry yeah i also believe that people should be taxed especially the rich um and i would be i wouldn't be averse to paying more tax for public services such as the NHS and um, schools. And I believe in general, it's better for things to be nationalised than privatised. And I, d I don't believe that market forces should determine what's right and wrong and good and bad and effective and ineffective. I think most companies and most people need a fair amount of management. I wish that I hadn't gone first because... <laughs> That was a much better answer. And I agree with all of that. Like I agree. I yes, that's that is the left wing that I would that I would consider myself to be. So I suppose it's 
I suppose uh, to simplify it, you've basically got the further you go left, the more wealth is redistributed, and the further you go right, the more that it, it's you know um, not not redistributed, that it's fixed within static categories, or that it's and then that, that immediately leads us on to kind of um, all the all the concerns about structure and identity, doesn't it? Because if you believe that wealth shouldn't be redistributed. Um, if you then that tends to align itself with the belief that if people are rich, it's probably because they worked really hard for that money and they deserve it. So they shouldn't have it taken off them to support the feckless and the irresponsible because it's theirs and they worked for it. Whereas uh, the counter argument to that would be, but they, you know, they had all kinds of structural advantages that made them able to earn it or inherit it um, or gain it in other ways. And if people are rich, it's not necessarily because they're brilliant people and if they're poor it's not necessarily because it's their fault so then as soon as you are thinking about all the structural conditions that might lead someone to be rich or poor then you're getting into the more complex stuff where you start needing to think about class and race and sex and gender and sexuality um, and all of the all of the stuff that we actually spend much more time disagreeing about than we do about whether taxes should be higher or lower. Absolutely, yeah. And there comes a question, of, or it's often figured as being a question of what's conservative and what's progressive. But then what's progressive gets bound up in questions of morality and a sense of what's... It becomes a question of right and wrong quite quickly, doesn't it? And then, yeah. I think it's interesting as well that the political compass has got... It's left and right, but it's also authoritarian and libertarian. And... As the diagram, as my graph shows, you can be left-wing and authoritarian because that's that's what Stalin was, you know, an authoritarian <laughs> on the left. So, but then, oh, oh, but then you also often see that if something's authoritarian, then it's right, then it's then once it's right, it's wrong, and then it's evil, and everyone's a fascist. And Boris Johnson is, I believe, somewhat to the right of centre, but is a libertarian. According, according to his political compass results, he is not. He came up uh, authoritarian right. Well, I think it depends who you're talking to and in the wake of what recent action, because yeah. I think it was all of his libertarian impulses that meant he didn't want to go into lockdown until it was way past necessary. But it's his authoritarian impulses that make him sometimes feel that he doesn't really need to consult with anyone or abide by the law and that people will have to just sort of crack on and do as they're told. But I think maybe maybe he's just a libertine. Yeah. <laughs> he's definitely a libertine, isn't he? Yeah. Um, maybe that's what's interesting about Boris Johnson, is he's caught in this constant sort of ping-pong between his authoritarian and his libertarian impulses. Someone else who, according to their results on the political compass, who's slightly right, slightly right of centre and in the authoritarian box, here's Starmer. Well, I don't think that's right. I think, well, this this speaks to the, the tribalism and the binaries that we're going to be talking about, doesn't it? In that for a lot of people, because Keir Starmer is not um, Jeremy Corbyn, and Jeremy Corbyn came to stand for everything that was pure socialist and left wing, if Keir Starmer is not Jeremy Corbyn, ergo Keir Starmer is basically just Boris Johnson. And I think maybe... Yeah it's more complicated than that. I think it is. And I think a lot of these complexities come to the foreground when you start discussing the differences between left and right-wing comedy. Yeah, so should we discuss the differences between left-wing and right-wing comedy? 
What's the context for all of this? Why are we talking about the differences between left wing and right wing comedy? Is there a context? I don't know. I do there know. Is a context. Yeah. So in there's a new director general at the BBC, and he came into office in September. Tim Davis has taken over, and he has said that he wants to help restore trust and confidence in public broadcasting. And he made a few comments and they were received as meaning where people interpreted them as him claiming that he was going to crack down on the BBC's perceived left wing bias. And that comedy panel shows should basically be worried because he'd be coming after them first. A few days after he was in office, it was actually the 30th birthday of Have I Got News For You? And they did a tweet that said it's our 30th birthday, but I don't think we'll get five more seasons now that Tim Davis is director general of the BBC. Um, so that's prompted lots of questions over whether or not there is indeed a left-wing bias in comedy at the BBC, what constitutes left-wing comedy, what right-wing comedy might look like, whether or not he's going to turn all of the comedy right-wing and, and lots of allusions to people like Bernard Manning. So that's the context of it. I had to look around to see if I could find any comedy comedians who said that they were right-wing talking about being right-wing comedians. I found two examples. Oh. One of them actually follows on nicely from what we were just talking about. Simon Evans, he said, first of all, there's the question of whether comedians who are described as right-wing are right-wing. What does that mean? We often now talk about it as the political compass when we're online, which we've just been talking about. But it allows you to sort of, it, it, it allows you sort of two vectors of dispute between authoritarian and libertarian and between, I suppose, sort of left and right fiscal positions, whether you think money should be redistributed. And I think various so-called right-wing comedians might occupy different points on that graph. So Simon Evans, who's often cited as an example of a right-wing comedian, appears on a lot of Radio 4 channel show, uh, panel shows. He's there saying that there isn't a fixed idea of what a right-wing comedian is. And they probably, the comedians who are put in those brackets probably wouldn't even agree that they were right-wing. Although I think he does get invited on things specifically to be the right-wing comedian. You know when you hear him on something, he's um, he's got himself a, a decent little niche there, I think, hasn't he? I mean, he's, he's right, though, that we need to define what we mean by a right-wing and a left-wing comedian. And I don't think, I mean, partly it's because, as we proved at the top of the show, it's not particularly funny to make jokes about taxation and smaller states. Where jokes lie is in the the business of daily life and the ridiculousness of daily life and the sort of things that annoy us um, and things that we understand and things that we can engage in which might be anything from like I don't know it's really it's really funny when you can't find the remote control to um, isn't Brexit a shit show but none of those things at the at the sort of incredibly basic observational comedy end of the spectrum the scale are not political and at the other end of the scale is it's actually harder to say which is right wing and which is left wing but i suspect what is meant a lot of the time is who is the butt of your jokes are you are you joking about particular groups and particular identities and also i think what they were trying to crack down on is rants and monologues about Boris Johnson and Brexit, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's another another quote here from a comedian, Jeff Norcott, who actually is the token right-wing comic on The Mash Report, which we'll be talking more about later. And he says that it's a small C conservative mindset to accept the world as it is and not as you wish it to be. And it's that which is the engine room of observational comedy. You go, well, this is shit. Let's have a laugh about it. There's nothing really funny in idealism, but... What that eventually leads to is a sort of acceptance of stereotypes to a degree, 
And this is where there's maybe a path that you could take you into some tricky areas. But I'm willing to say a lot of comedy is about exceptions, but I'm happy to talk about a rule. Um, do you think there's something fundamentally conservative about observational comedy or the impulse to laugh at the world as it is? There's something small c conservative about it for sure, isn't there? Even just in the sense of like, you know, say something like somebody like Michael McIntyre inviting you to agree that yes, you have a man draw or um, yes, spice racks are funny or yes, little children who haven't yet learned to talk properly are amusing when they make mistakes. This is, it's inviting you to kind of look at but not be too upset about um, the, the quirks and irritations of the life you share with Michael McIntyre, not share with him, you're not his wife, he's not inviting you to do that, but the, you know, our common humanity to kind of raise a wry eyebrow of that, at that and then crack on. And yes, I think observational comedy, most most of the comedians I admire the most have at some point or other sort of been scathing about or satirised observational comedy, which is not to say that all observational comedy is unfunny or that some people don't do it extremely well, but it's, it's conservative in two senses, isn't it? Because it says like, this is the status quo. It's just made up of small annoyances get on with it but it's also small c conservative in that it harks back to an earlier era of comedy itself it's not as a form it's not doing anything kind of innovative or challenging or difficult it's um just asking you if as, as Stuart Lee has said you know it's noticing things about your life coffee on the train is never as good as it is in the in your own home or in a coffee shop no, is it? No. I mean, so that so that maybe suggests. I mean, small c conservative doesn't necessarily mean right wing, but that that that, he, that that person is certainly suggesting that there is that a lot of comedy fits into that category. But then the great arbiter of taste and good judgment, Owen Jones, claims that that right wing can't be funny. He says the reason there's a lack of right wing comedy is it's mostly just isn't funny. There isn't a big market for it. It's a victim of market forces. That's weird that Owen Jones would draw on market forces as the kind of, I was being facetious sincerely, because you can, on the one hand, not think that market forces should be the ultimate arbiter of what succeeds and what fails. And on the other hand, of course, you can still acknowledge that market forces exist and that they do determine what survives and what fails. So in the, I guess maybe, maybe it's the case that in the sort of Darwinian dynamics of comedy, right-wing comedy hasn't survived because it, there isn't a big market for it. Yeah. I'm dubious about Owen Jones's judgment on such issues because he's a man who thought it was funny to post a picture of himself next to a woman wearing a t-shirt saying that she'd cook, suck cocks for socialism on the day of the general election when he was a key figure in the Labour Party campaign. So I don't really trust his judgment on what's funny. However, right-wing comedians or comedians that are enjoyed by people who might not vote Labour or comedians who might in their spare time occupy right-wing sentiments such as like Jim Davison or Roy Turby Brown or whatever they didn't it wasn't that market forces necessarily determined their downfall but the point is for the purposes of this conversation they were not on have I got news for you or um, BBC Radio 4 6.30 comedy slot. So we're not necessarily saying that all comedians who might be on the right of the political spectrum just, just went away, although a lot of them did die. But what we're talking about is who gets to be on the BBC and that's, that's the issue at stake here, isn't it? I, th I think perhaps Owen Jones is 
is kind of being he's he's looking at a very kind of small sample group isn't he where he says there isn't a big market for it is a victim of market forces he's not looking at all of the market and it would in his utopia they would have all just gone away because literally nobody likes them but we know that's not true because boris johnson sailed to power with a massive majority we know there's plenty of people who like right-wing stuff out there the yeah. question is are they on the bbc well, that's the thing, isn't it? Like he, he says, there's no, there's no market for it. There's no right wing audience. But then at the same, at the other time, he'll be claiming that you know everybody is racist and homophobic and transphobic, and everyone who voted Brexit is a monster. So, just ease up on Owen Jones. But, but it, but it does seem to me that you know you can't have it both ways. Either everyone who voted Brexit is a horrible conservative racist, in which case there is a sizable audience for right wing comedy. Yeah. No, not obviously not an ideal situation. Not something I want to advocate. Where will they find their right wing comedy? So, speaking of things that aren't on the BBC, the Mash report got cancelled. Yes, it did. How do you feel about that? Well, I'm slightly cushioned from it, given that I have never really watched it, or that I've seen clips of it on YouTube, and it hasn't really appealed to me strongly. So, I've never watched it fully. Personally, it doesn't make much difference to me. But I was interested in some of the reactions. How about you? How do you feel about it? I think I watched it once or some of it once. Um, I would say, yeah, I mean, most of their positions um, don't have a... Probably I should like them, but I never thought it was very funny. There's been some interesting reactions, though. So, for example, David Schneider tweeted, while the right scream about being cancelled from all their newspaper columns and on TV shows and soon on their new TV channel, The Mash Report, a show that dared to satirise the government, is actually cancelled, actually cancelled. A true democracy doesn't cancel satire. Well, I think TV shows do get cancelled, though, don't they? It's the original sense of the term. So this is where I first encountered the word cancel, was that you've not been renewed for another season. Like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the character played by David Schneider, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I do like David Schneider. I have some queries about this particular claim. Does that so claiming that a true democracy doesn't doesn't not renew a satirical show? Does that mean that any satirical show is immune from having to justify its existence or or being you know, popular at broadcasting? In a democracy, yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. But it's not like we decide what what satire to cancel and what not to. Uh, as arrived at by a democratic decision is it um it is just people who are in charge of the bbc so yeah i i think what he's he's i think he's sort of there's a bit of slippage there isn't he he's sort of making it sound as though by using democracy and the bbc is not a democracy the bbc is you know a, a corporation um, and it can and will cancel things but using the phrase a true democracy sort of makes it sound like it's the government who've done it. And also there's this, there's potential for slippage in that cancel satire, isn't it? It's like, because I don't think he means one individual show. It, the suggestion here is like satire itself is being outlawed as if we're in North Korea or something. We're not going to be allowed to satirise. And I think we are allowed to satirise but Nish Kumar isn't allowed to. Yeah, so I think David Schneider, broadly on the left, Tom Slater in The Spectator, a publication that's usually considered on the right, said this, Tom Slater wrote, even among the politically monochrome BBC comedy stable, the mass report broke new ground for liberal sanctimony and woke hectoring. It was comedy that only works if you agree with the sentiment being expressed, and even then it isn't actually funny. 
The mash report was all of this and then some. In response to the show's canning, Kumar has tweeted a picture of him from the show gesturing, gesturing to a graphic that reads, Boris Johnson is a liar and a racist, which is basically his comedy, such as it is, summed up. I would I would balk from like liberal sanctimony and woke hectoring, although I kind of know what they're getting at when they use those phrases. But I have to agree, because this, like I said, I did mostly agree with the sentiments being expressed, but didn't find it actually funny. And I suppose as well, you know, this goes back to the questions about does satire work or not. You know, Nish Kumar's graphic that read Boris Johnson is a liar and a racist didn't didn't change anything, did it? <laughs> and then Rachel Paris, who is one of the comedians on it, she she retweeted a stand-up the stand-up comedian Mark Oliver, who's a warm-up artist, who said the Mash Report is the only show I've worked on where I've been asked to dial down my warm-up because the audience were too loud. The noise of laughter wasn't just going through the audience mics, but into the mics of the comics. Brilliant records, host and team of writers. So people say it's not funny, but there's a claim there that it was so funny that it damaged the microphones. Yeah, I mean, I suppose we don't know who were in the audience, do we? They might have been might have been anyone but then he's saying they were laughing they were like pissing themselves at his warm-up <laughs> not yeah. at the mash report so if they were already in this kind of febrile state before the show started then you know presumably it's mark oliver's um it's to his credit that they laughed in the in the mash report not that of nish kumar and rachel paris i i'd have to say that might come under the category of a weird flex <laughs> I guess there's only one thing too, which is to have a look at the MASH report and see if we how we think the satire works. Now, there has been a lot of coverage recently about how young people are a bunch of weak, entitled snowflakes. Millennials are entitled, they're lazy, they're weak, they're the me, me, me generation. <laughs> and of course, they spend all of their money on avocados, which is a sort of savoury pear that costs the same amount as a house. Now, many of the accusations of snowflakery centre upon people who find everything offensive. Non-Mexicans wearing sombreros, the sitcom friends, opinions about transgender issues, and of course we shouldn't be shutting down free speech, even when it's deemed distasteful. Of all human rights, the right to offend people is one of my absolute favourites. <laughs> For example, shut up Nish, you tedious lefty ball bag. <laughs> Black these days. <laughs> I don't. Uh, <laughs> but the snowflake accusation is also being used to discredit anyone who worries about equality or looks to improve the lot of humans. The argument goes that if you complain about horror, injustice or inequality, then you're self-pitying and pathetic. Only this week, Matthew Paris in The Times said that the Me Too movement was about self-pitying and gaining victim status. Matthew moaned that too much of the media was devoted to women moaning too much, and we know this because he moaned about it in The Times, and then moaned about it in The Spectator, and finally moaned about it on Radio 4. That is a man who needs a safe space. You see, there is a determined campaign to conflate people being a bit squeamish about offensive ideas and language with people legitimately demanding change. And the truth is, history is absolutely littered with dreadful snowflakes. Martin Luther King was a famous hand-wringing liberal who got all hysterical about the persecution of black people in America. He had a dream about little kiddies playing together. <laughs> Stop dreaming and do some bloody work, you hipster! <laughs> 
millennials and post-millennials, you are all apparently entitled narcissists, even as you will be the first generation to earn less than your parents, and you will never be able to afford to buy a property. <laughs> I don't know what the problem is. Don't they like hearing mum and dad having sex as they lie in their childhood bedroom thinking, Christ, I'll be 40 soon? I'm gonna say I didn't I didn't laugh at that. I feel like the targets are too ill-defined. It's trying to do too many things. It's trying to articulate the partial and ill-informed view of millennials from what I think is implied to be like Daily Mail readers who are obsessed with the fact that millennials eat too many avocados and then that they find everything offensive. And then she says that she likes to to offend people, doesn't she? But then I think that it turns out that's not true. The character that she's playing, so the joke is, it's a bit like, it, she's doing, the, the whole routine as a whole, I think is supposed to work like Modest Proposal, isn't it? Which is, here's a, view, here's a set of views, which I'm going to say with a straight face, which are absurd, like it, it, they're insane claims. So, you know, it's ridiculous to actually think that millennials are snowflakes who are offended by everything. But then the mask slips for the second part after she breaks, after she talks to Nish Kumar and comes back. And then she's then is suggesting what she considers to be the actual problem, which is that anyone who demands legitimate change is tarred with the same brush as Snowflake. Well, there is a huge, huge leap there, isn't there? And and straw manning. The argument goes that if you complain about horror, injustice or inequality, you are self-pitying and pathetic. I don't think anybody's making that argument. No. And also that's different from the argument that she was making before, which is people getting upset about avocados. Like there's a conflation perhaps of two separate issues, which is what might be broadly considered the comic comedic topic of snowflakery with social justice more generally yeah and then it's so you see there is a determined campaign to come conflate people being a bit squeamish about offensive terms and language with people legitimately demanding change and the truth is that history is absolutely littered with dreadful snowflakes such as martin luther king it seems to me like rachel paris is the one conflating people being squeamish about offensive terms and language with people legitimately demanding change and sort of suggesting that the minute you kind of have an issue about a piece a bit of language or a pronoun or something you are basically martin luther king is equally open to question that's exactly what i was going to say so she's complaining the complaint is that people are conflating these two things she's making that observation while she's conflating those two things she steps out of character to make her own point which basically it gets anybody off the hook for saying anything at all if it well if it can be considered an objection to horror injustice or inequality even if that's self-determined self-defined by the person speaking any one of those people as you say is 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 up there with gandhi and martha luther king and then she steps back into character for the end where she's like you're all all you millennials are a bunch of entitled narcissists and you won't even be able to buy a house so inconsistent and and straw manny but Mm. then but then it's satire or it's considered satire and comedy critique plus something else i think that's also the problem though isn't it because who is she satire she's i guess i mean obviously she's satirizing a person who thinks that millennials and post millennials are snowflakes and then also assuming that person would therefore in a sort of gotcha oh, it turns out then you're basically, you hate Martin Luther King. But also, there's, like, she's she's satirising the form of somebody on TV who, you know, who talks about coverage and does summaries. And I feel like that bit of it, for me, this kind of satire, this has to work as, like, I have to recognise what kind of format and what kind of TV show it is you're inverting and and playing with. And that's my biggest objection. It's like, who, when I see Alan Partridge... Uh, on this time, I 
know that I should be thinking about, you know, the one show and BBC Breakfast and this morning and all the rest of it. When I see Rachel Paris doing her monologues on the MASH report, what is that? That's what I didn't like about the show. It's partly the awkward, or, you know, awkward in my eyes, importation of a mode from America, isn't it? It's a genre that they've taken it from America, The Daily Show. Yes, they just copied it. But it's not... It's not a tradition that we have. Like the, the, the what's the name of the man from The Daily Show? Colbert. It's the, the Colbert yeah. report. And I suppose the closest we have is when Graham Norton does his opening shtick on the Graham Norton show. But like, it's not a it's not a genre really that we that I'm familiar with enough to appreciate what's going on here. And it just comes off as awkward. And the delivery of it, I wouldn't necessarily pitch my pony to the post that says that it's woke hectoring, but it is hectoring, isn't it? Like that's that's the vibe that is deliberate it feels deliberate to me that that's that it is kind of like a lecture i mean also i said that my least favorite thing about it was that the form is kind of not properly thought through but i feel like it's also incredibly basic like there's not there's nothing challenging about this is there like people i don't like call millennials snowflake so i'm gonna defend what is perceived to be their snowflakery and you know get in some stuff about avocados and house prices in there there's nothing like challenging or innovative or smart about this and and i, I don't don't like it mm. just a, a final a couple of final thoughts so rory bremner had a different take on all of this mash report stuff where he said in on twitter he said if people complain that satire is left wing it might just be because we've had a conservative led government for 11 years and satire like good journalism holds the powerful to account i think i think there's a lot of mileage in that isn't there you know the satire is <laughs> You, you're mostly going to satirise whoever's got the power, aren't you? And it's the Conservatives who've got the power. So, shall we talk to Sebastian Bloomfield? Yes, let's talk to Sebastian Bloomfield. So, cards on the table before we go to Seb. Just in the interest of full disclosure, I do actually know Seb. I've met him before. He's um... Well, it'd be weird if it was just a random off the street, wouldn't it? Well, I mean, usually we have guests who we, you know, we don't know our guests. Yeah. But, uh, but I do know Seb. He's actually doing a PhD at York St. John University in comedy, uh, in stand-up comedy. The, the, the role of the audience in stand-up comedy and I'm his secondary supervisor so we do know each other and he's a member of the York Research Unit for the Studio Satire so he's the first person we've ever had on the podcast who we actually know from work so um yeah so we're speaking to Seb because he wrote an article for The Conversation uh, over the summer when when all of this first kicked off called BBC Comedy's Not Left Wing it's the audience has moved to the right and inside the article and inside the interview we're going to cut to now he refers to something called the Overton Window what is that Joe? It's like If you have like a house on a hill at the edge of a town and you look out at the view, that's the overtown window, isn't it? Overtown window. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Or have I made a tragic misunderstanding? No, I think that sounds about right. Oh, wait, no, that is wrong. So the overtown window is a metaphor metaphorical window and inside the window is everything that is acceptable to say and think at a certain time and the theory goes that the Overton window moves from the left to the right as you go through history and it's one explanation for why jokes in the 70s don't work as well now is because the Overton window has moved and that's one of the theoretical principles he's going to refer to in this interview but let's play the interview over to you Adam and Joe and Seb in this recent past. So do you think that the mass report was cancelled because of the BBC's reaction to left-wing bias? Or do you think there are other reasons why people might cancel that shit? I think <laughs> I think it's a little bit more in the middle, to be honest. I think it had kind of run its course in terms of what they were wanting to do with it, but it also allowed them to get points on the other side um, for getting rid of it, you know, without explicitly saying that 
oh, it's it's cancelled because of this. It's you know, it's 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 interesting because it, it was a little bit more of an importation of the kind of the American style satire shows, and it's interesting to see how how kind of reaction to that has been in terms of the British public. Because if if you look at the panel show sketch kind of Charlie Brooker kind of stuff that you they're the other dominant forms of it I would say I mean panel shows within themselves uh, I would always say are just stand-up shows where all the comedians are on stage at once and you've you've got your host functioning as your compare basically and, and throwing yeah. throwing battles and forwards to them so obviously the American kind of ones are a lot more political in their jabs as they go with it it was yeah. it was three points for Tim Davey and the BBC to kind of just go right yeah that that, that, that can go so essentially, then, do you think it's an American import in terms of format that doesn't maybe sit quite as well as some of the more familiar formats in the UK? Yeah. It had run out of steam and then it was an easy win to get rid. Yes, yeah, so that, that, I mean, that's my opinion, obviously, but that, that's that's how I would kind of view it. Because in terms of the differences as well we're seeing now with the lockdown shows and everything else like that, it's a lot easier to kind of do the, the monologue style shows in terms of what, what, at least what I've seen in terms of recording and everything else like that. I mean, I know it's not st- uh, strictly satirical, but if you look at something like um, the Graham Norton show, I don't know whether you watched that kind of before and after the lockdown, the change there has been very much, uh, it's become a lot more anecdotal and a lot less bouncing backwards and forwards off the audience, everything else like that, which obviously makes recording kind of just straight panel shows a lot harder because that relies so much on the audience, so much so on the audience kind of being there and reacting. And, and, and just like stand-up, the comedians kind of reacting to the audience and, and almost goading them sometimes in their own way to, and each other to get that reaction. Whereas the, the American hosted satirical show is a lot easier format to record in, in, in terms of that. But at the same time, if you don't like the host or you don't like the <laughs> the the views of the host, it, it's all very much one thing. So does that, the fact that, like, I think that's quite a compelling argument that a various things sort of came together that meant it was the right time for the MASH report to go. So what's your take on left-wing, right-wing bias at the BBC? Well, I mean, in terms of comedy, at least from, from my perspective, coming from kind of a stand-up background, uh, and, and from my research into stand-up, what I find with comedy is people generally try and go where the funny is. And if there is a right-wing government in power, the funny is to to mock them, point out their failings and everything else like that. Not that they do so exclusively, obviously, if, if something else has come into the news. Not that it really has recently in terms of um, opposition parties or anything else like that. But it, it, it is very much, I think, on... The party in power and I, uh, as I had said in the article about the the Overton window the way that that kind of shifts the, the the way that the middle is seen shifts as time goes on you've only got to kind of look at the vitriol and everything else like that that came out around Jeremy Corbyn and um, his lot more left-leaning socialist views towards the election to see how much that window had shifted in terms of the media and in terms of public perception and if you look back, uh, just taking Have I Got News For You, for example, just as a kind of an exercise, I'd, I'd taken transcripts of some of the earlier shows going back right back to the 90s, run kind of keyword uh, finding against them. So, you know, how many times within a series did they mention Thatcher? How many times within a series did they mention Tony Blair? Uh, various things like that. You can actually see almost within a graph that 
as the power the power base changes, the number of mentions change. Thatcher was maybe a little bit of an outlier on that because she she was um, lasted a lot longer in terms of people talking about her than, than most others do. But you can see as it goes up to Cornwall's 1997 New Labour, everything else coming in, uh, the, the the kind of shift in what is being talked about. And the mass report itself, I would say, was a lot more left-leaning than Have I Got News For You ever has been. But I think it was also almost blatantly so, if you know what I mean. It, it pushed itself out as that. That was kind of the audience it was trying to cultivate. And it's a lot easier to be or to be seen as very, very left-leaning when this Overton window has moved. So even if it's kind of slightly left of centre ideas, are starting to creep towards, you know, people viewing it as the far left. So I think uh, bias is always going to be there, but politics is just kind of one lens that comedy uses to look at the world. Uh, it's, it's, you know, one of, of many kind of gender, race, everything else like that, that you use it from your own perspective. As, you know, as a comedian, you... You talk about what you know, and if you're someone like Nish Kumar, who is very much into politics, kind of made, made it his business to be into that kind of thing, that's what he talks about, because that's what he knows. You mentioned in the, so the article, is the headline was, BBC comedy is not left-wing, its audience has moved to the right, which is, I think, yeah. what you're describing there. And um, you begin it by saying, I'm not going to argue that comedy is or should be apolitical, society is political, and comedy reflects society. What I'm going to argue is the idea of balance is erroneous because of the fundamental nature of comedy. And then you say comedy is always countercultural and counter hegemonic by its very nature. It fights against the dominant culture and works to actively undermine it, regardless of the leanings of its proponents. In this way, it functions as a critique of the dominant culture, making it an inherently outgroup activity. Mm. So I just wondered how does that work in terms of jokes that rely on... There are There is comedy that relies on propagating the dominant culture as well, isn't it? I mean, that's where you get all the jokes about, that are reliant on stereotypes and stuff like that. We can, can all agree that this is how this person behaves or, or the joke is that you secretly think that and I know you think that. But this is the thing, though. I mean, even, even if you're pushing kind of comedy towards that, if you're saying, you know, oh, we all secretly think that, what you're saying is secretly that is still against the dominant culture. What you're saying there is we, we think that despite what the culture is telling us to think. And the idea really, I think, is that that culture is not just one sided. It's 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 an amalgamation of any of everything that, that, that people are that, 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 uh, an amalgamation of the ways that people see the world, should I say. And. It is always an outgroup activity comedy, even if it's just that, say, I mean, obviously he's not around anymore, but um, if a Bernard Manning show or somebody who kind of told jokes like that, when he was still touring in his later years, it was almost rebellious to go and sit and listen to those jokes because you knew that society was wouldn't approve of what he was saying. You knew that, you know, that it was against political correctness. So it's always even if it's kind of reinforcing stereotypes or anything like that, it's, it's always a, a, against what, always against what people consider kind of, you know, polite. There's always this kind of undercurrent of, um, of danger and uh, of breaking the rules with comedy, I always find. Yeah, so I, I see that, the way you're describing it. So, you know, if you made a joke that's like, oh, women are like this, which is propagating sort of misogynistic stereotypes and the patriarchy and stuff like that, the pleasure of saying the joke is still that some people wouldn't agree or a lot of people wouldn't agree yes yeah yeah so i mean it, it's not a kind of um, a support of those things or a, a, the fact that those things are right it's 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 basically it's it's the taboo it's it's pushing in a way that you know 
will probably upset someone somewhere. So one of the things that I've been trying to puzzle through is what do we mean when we say left-wing and right-wing comedy, right? Because there's nothing intrinsically right-wing about a mother-in-law joke or a sexist joke or a racist joke or any other kind of discriminatory joke. And it's not as if the left is just automatically pure and free of any of those things. But at the same time, it's always, I suppose, because when alternative comedy in the 80s really changed our notions of what comedy can be and what it does, the people who did it were from a broadly similar background and set of political views. And it's tended to be like ever since then, every time there's a general election, it there's always a satisfaction in that it's like, oh, my people are the ones who are, you know, telling people to vote Labour, basically. But it's not, it's not a right-wing policy to be offensive about your mother-in-law. And so there's a difference, isn't there, between comedy that attacks who's in power and comedy that is, by definition, left or right-wing. So, like, Armando Iannucci and Peter Bainham and David Schneider almost as soon as Labour got in in 97, and I'm probably the only person that remembers this, but they, they did um, a show called The Friday Night Armistice, where every week they'd just get Labour's manifesto and say they're failing this, they're not doing that, that was a lie, that was spin, that's not happening, that's wrong. And then there was the thick of it, obviously, which obviously it satirised both political parties, but was more focused on satirising the whole idea of spin. But none of those people are, are right-wing comedians, but they were satirising the current manifestation of the left, it, albeit perhaps not for not being left-wing enough. But how do we... Like, what would, what would a left-wing or a right-wing comedian or a left-wing or a right-wing joke actually look like, as opposed to a joke that comes from someone you know is right-wing, like Bernard Manning or Jim Davison or whatever? I think um, I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head with that, really. Um, and I think maybe a better kind of phraseology for it would be kind of conservative and progressive mm. in terms of the the jokes um, that are done. Obviously, as as we were just discussing, this idea of kind of maintaining the status quo, um, kind of pushing people down, not 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 kind of letting people get too far, as you would say, above their station, make, making people kind of stay in their place. That's more, that's more kind of the the preservation conservative side of it and then the progressive is kind of pushing back going well no this should change because it needs to this should change because it needs to and almost kind of highlighting things um on that side um including as as you pointed out hypocrisy um with 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 both parties but yeah i think i think left wing and right wing in terms of jokes themselves are too much of a uh, a straitjacket in terms of uh, um, the phrasing around it and and yeah prog progressive and conservative I think would be a better thing because it, it seems to me as well there's another a very obvious and understandable conflation and what the two things for me do conflate with the the example that's often given of like the BBC comedy is too left-wing and the MASH report did this is Brexit and there's a sort of assumption that to satirise Brexit is a left-wing thing to do and to be keen on Brexit is a right-wing thing to do. And there's there's so many layers to that, aren't there? Because obviously it was the, it, it's the most right-wing element of the Tory party that kind of were most in favour of it. I think it's kind of the left is, has been more aligned with 
or was more aligned with remaining, although not in Jeremy Corbyn's case. But it's often, there's a kind of lazy conflation of Brexit with being left wing. Now, I hate Brexit and like the left wing, but I do understand that there's a left wing argument for Brexit. And also, arguably, even to stretch the point, Brexit was not the the small C conservative, let's keep things the same position. It was change. And I feel like Brexit has really... It's, it's come to figure for, for what people who are having the kinds of arguments that you're trying to unpack and rationalise and talk through in the article. Brexit's the big sort of, it's at the heart of all that, I think, isn't it? I mean, that, that was a kind of big theme for the MASH report, right? And Nish Kumar got pelted with bread rolls, didn't he, at some free comedy gig because of his um, Remain position. I, th- I, I think I'm right in remembering. Mm. And I think, um, yeah, I think that it is because it, it it has been an issue that divided the country in ways, I think, that were completely separate from class political divisions that we kind of come across before. And in its own way, it, it kind of revolutionised how people view our society in terms of not only politics, but like you say, in terms of comedy. So the fact that it's not a an easy left-wing, right-wing, these people voted for it, these people didn't situation means that even though the, the perception uh, attacking Brexit would, would, would be a, a left-wing thing to do, when you do that as a comedian, you're then upsetting a lot more people than you would otherwise think. It's not just, you know, our side and theirs, it's people who have voted Labour all their life but um, wanted to take back control or because they believed that that was what kind of Brexit was about in terms of immigration and various things like that. You've got um, people who were Eurosceptic but not necessarily right-wing. Because it was pushed to a kind of uh, political thing, the shows that were overtly political then had to comment on it but the danger then is that they were alienating a lot of people in doing so and as you say that's kind of self-evident you can see that people were sick of Brexit sick of jokes about Brexit and unfortunately it's because it, it, it dominated kind of the media the media cycle for what three three four years as all, all people were really talking about and, and, and as a topical show what else do you talk about when there's nothing nothing else major in the news cycle it's 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 almost like a a death spiral within its own self isn't it it just kind of it feeds back into itself and then the media comments that entertainment shows are mocking brexit and then that is then mocked by entertainment and it just kind of swirls and swirls and swirls until all kind of light entertainment news everything else like that is just about one thing in terms of topical and satirical comedy it, it comes back to what's acceptable within the the Overton window and what what is seen as kind of a sensible, prudent thing to be making jokes about. If any of our listeners at home want to follow your ideas or your comedy, how can they do that, Seb? Uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, Twitter, a uh, Twitter. I'm on Twitter, um, uh, Ruddy Great Com. Uh, Ruddy Great Comedy uh, is my Twitter handle, so that's probably the best place to find me and find my my kind of stuff. Brilliant, that's been excellent. Well, we'll come back again soon. And, oh, thank you very uh, much. Thanks yeah. for all your thoughts. Thank you. All right. Thanks very much, guys. Bye. See you later. Bye. Well, 
Well, I really enjoyed talking to Sebastian Bloomfield, did you? I always enjoyed talking to Sebastian Bloomfield. We are proud to have to have him on again. So I think we've sorted that all out now. We know the difference between mm. left-wing and right-wing satire. So, I mean, do you think satire is left-wing or right-wing after all that? That's like saying, do you think literature is poetry or prose, isn't it? It can be both. I mean, you know, sometimes it's one, sometimes it's the other. It depends who's doing it. I think so too. And I think anyone who like stakes a claim to one or the other as a definitive universal truth is... I think that they've overreached. I think it's too big a claim. I think it's hubristic to make such a statement. So um, is there anything else we need to discuss today? I don't think so. Join, join us on the Patreon episode and get onto our <laughs> merch store. Not really. We haven't got either of those things. Next time you hear us, listeners, you might be listening to the episode in a beer garden or <laughs> out in a restaurant. You won't be, be sat outside a restaurant. You can't go in a restaurant, can you? I think you, you can. I think restaurants with gardens, can. you can eat outside of them. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's going to be something a lot of people do is get together in kind of groups of six or two households and listen to the podcast because it's it's fine listening to it on your own, isn't it? But it's really a social activity. And I think a lot of people are just don't jump the gun. Don't go inside and listen to it. It's safer. Go get a blanket from in the house, then sit outside the house and listen to the podcast. Don't. It's not worth dying for, is it? No, but it is. Depending on who you are, it's almost certainly not worth dying for. Best enjoyed with five other people all listening quietly at a distance just before we go what can listeners do to help us out email us yeah they could drop us a line basically they just need to let us know they're aware of the podcast and ideally that it has impacted them in some way uh changed the way they think about satire entertained them brought them solace in a difficult time uh i you know if anyone's out there and and they think they they're thinking like you know what over the last year one of the things that's really kept me going during this pandemic is having an episode of Smith and War talk about satire to look forward to and think. Yeah, about. I mean, it sounds like it sounds like a small thing, doesn't it? But you know, if you if you essentially owe your life and your sanity to us, um, it'd be really nice to just let us know. It would, yeah, it'd be more valuable to us than money to have that testimony. Well, well, it's, yeah. a, bit, it's a slightly moot point because we can't really earn money from this, given that it's no. jobs. But, um, but yeah, so yeah, give us a go. Let us know if we change your life, and we'll see you again next time. And in the meantime, you can uh, follow us on Twitter at satire no more. You can follow us on Instagram at talk about satire, and you can drop us an email at satire no more at gmail.com. With that, that's all been said. So have a lovely time. Thanks for listening. Sit up. Shut. Oh, and eat my and also my satire. satire. <laughs> Goodbye, listeners. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.